Pushkin. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. Before AI can help your business predict demand, accelerate growth, inform decisions, automate tasks, reveal insights, generate content, you have to trust it. Introducing Watson X Governance, helping you govern any AI as data, models, and policies change so you can scale it responsibly. Let's create AI that begins with trust with Watson X Governance. Learn more at ibm.com governance. IBM, let's create. Small business owners, this one's for you. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you, who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Learn more at chase.com business podcast. Chase. Make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A. Member, FDIC. Copyright 2024, J.P. Morgan, Chase & Co. This is Talk Easy. I'm Sam Fragoso. Welcome to the show. Hello, everyone. Thank you for being here. Today on the podcast, I am pleased to have on writer and art critic Antoine Sargent. He has written for The New York Times, The New Yorker, Vice, W Magazine, The Nation, Interview Magazine, The Fader. The list goes on. Where there are words about art, there's Antoine Sargent. Last year, he released a book called The New Black Vanguard, Photography Between Art and Fashion. It was a piece about the ways in which representation plays on our psyche and shapes our realities. Now he has a new book that he's recently edited called Young, Gifted, and Black, A New Generation of Artists. It's about black collectors, artists, and curators doing the work to ensure that black art is made, seen, valued, and preserved. It also, as you probably gathered from the title, is introducing this young, emerging wave of creators. Now, the reason I wanted to have Antoine on in this moment is because, I don't know about you, I really miss going to museums. I have found it really hard to channel any amount of energy into art during this election season. So, for the next 45 minutes, Antoine and I are going to fix that. First, he's going to set the stage for what's been happening in the art world during the pandemic, and what we can expect the future of museums to look like. We also dive into the existing power structures that make it really difficult for young men and women of color to break into the system, to get work at a place like Vogue, 
to get written about in the New York Times. As a writer, critic, and historian of the art world, Antoine has this unique ability to describe the details of the big picture. He offers a window into how these institutions operate and how these artists create. Then, finally, before we leave, in the final 15 minutes of this podcast, we've assembled a kind of virtual exhibit for you. Together, Antoine guides us through six pieces from his book, Young, Gifted, and Black. While you're listening, you can look at those pieces on our website at www.talkeasypod.com slash Antoine. That's talkeasypod.com slash Antoine. And now, here is Antoine Sargent. Thank you so much for being here. I uh, I want to start with a world that I know you are deeply familiar with, which is the art world. Many museums are closed. Mm-hmm. The pandemic has hit uh, the art community especially hard. What are the state of affairs in museums and, and across the country? I'm seeing sort of the art world as much as it likes to pretend to be separate, you know, from the world. It really is sort of a reflection. And in the ways that the pandemic has disproportionately affected certain people and have enriched others, you see that playing out in the art world. You see some galleries opening new spaces in the middle of a pandemic and going on about business as usual and adapting and going online and selling paintings for five and ten million dollars. And, you know, it's business as usual. And then on the other hand, you see smaller galleries closing, right? Um, I think you're also seeing that with museums. There's estimated that, you know, many, many, many smaller sort of cultural institutions will close, you know, by when this is all said and done, right? It's a real reflection. It's a real reflection of the experience that we're all grappling with. People keep saying, well, after the pandemic, it's all going to be better, you know? And I think that if what we are seeing right now is any indication of what's to come, it's that it's just going to become more stratified and more unequal. And, you know, you, you have to really sort of judge what's going to come next by what's happening during. And so what do we see happening during, you know, this pandemic is, you know, in some ways an acceleration of sort of unequal processes that we've seen before the pandemic, right? So if you think about who's gotten laid off, right? So a lot of educators, right? A lot of frontline staff, right? Which is a reflection of the hierarchies in these institutions, just like how you see billionaires getting richer, making money off the pandemic while others can't afford to feed their families, right? And so I think that it's a real reflection. And I think if we want something different in the after, we have to be doing that work, you know, now during the during. There, there are no saviors. You know, we'll save ourselves and have to. What would that museum art world space look like if the bottom, or rather the middle, dropped out? I mean, I think you'll see some mid-tier galleries closing, right? One of which is Gavin Brown Enterprise, right? Which is a storied, you know, New York art gallery. And Gavin, for, you know, decades, was someone who understood how to sort of 
predict where we were going in art, you know, and sort of the artists that he represented and the concerns that those artists have, right? I think a more recent example of him doing this is with Arthur Jaffa. He convinced Arthur, AJ, to not put Love is the Message, Messages of Death on YouTube and to instead show it in his gallery, right? Which was a star turn for um, AJ. And so he was really good about packaging brilliance, right? And, and sort of making sure that the culture was able to experience those works with the sort of breath and death and, you know, seriousness that they demand, right? I think if AJ would have put that video on YouTube, it would have just been a very different experience, right? And I think the impact would have been lesser because you're competing with other videos, right? And so to put that in the gallery space, right, to put that in a space where you have to have sort of a deep contemplation, especially in the way they presented it, it was just a video in a dark room, huge screen, you had a really sort of unbelievable experience with the artwork. And so you have, you know, galleries like that going away. And with that, then you have less of a potential for that gallerist to make those sort of interventions, right, in his program and, you know, in other spaces and clearly not introduce artists that are extremely influential in its practice, right? And so I think you, you're going to see some of that, right? You're going to see less risk in the sort of traditional art world, right? But I think that, you know, what one of the things that we don't always talk about is that the art world, right, is predicated on the possibilities that one has in terms of real estate. What does that mean? New York is this town about space, right? And you can also argue other places as well, or, you know, are towns about space, right? Artists work under, you know, any given conditions. New York was just becoming too damn expensive. And so you had a lot of artists leaving because they couldn't get studio space or they couldn't afford studio space, right? You had a lot of would-be gallerists not opening spaces because they couldn't afford spaces, right? What that does then, now that, you know, the market is said to be sort of declining or, you know, correcting itself or however you look at that, I think it opens up a lot of potential for cheap space, right? And I think you will have people using that space in ways that um, are experimental and hopefully for the good. You know, I, I think about even, you know, in Chelsea, right, when the galleries all moved to Chelsea and they had all this space and, you know, paintings got bigger, right, and experimentations got bigger and, and things like that. And so I think that we cannot divorce what is possible from the conditions in which artists are working. And part of that is the spatial relationships that these artists have, right, to the cities that they live in. Potentially, what we can have is a city where the rich are said to be fleeing or whatever. And those of us who are staying, because it's the only place for us to be, really, in a lot of ways, can start to use the city in ways that that is not just sort of um, a playground for the rich and the wealthy and the well-connected and really sort of make works that are divorce from the market and the museum and really sort of start to sort of imagine a new sort of art for our time. So I hope that is my hope, but we'll see. You mentioned how you want to imagine a new kind of space, a place where art may look a little bit different in the future. And, and more people are included, right? Because I think one of the things that we always have to contend with is that, you know, the art world is built around canons, right? And 
cannons are these things where you have people inside and you have people outside of them, right? And I think that there's a lot of people outside of those, you know, there's a lot of young artists, there are a lot of, you know, older artists, there's a lot, you know, there's a lot of people that live outside of those boxes. And so hopefully, what we could do is continue to expand our definitions and by expanding, be considered of other voices that have been excluded, have been overlooked, have been downright erased, you know, from the narratives of American and Western art. This desire seems to be the driving force of your new book, Young, Gifted, and Black. Mm -hmm. And before we get into that piece, I want to set up for context. Your last book was called The New Black Vanguard. You said that book was about the ways in which representation plays on our psyche and shapes our realities. Our thinking is shaped by the images that we know, you wrote, and what we see, and most of those images, are created by white men. How would you describe the premise of this new book? The New Black Vanguard, Photography Between Art and Fashion, really is an exploration of 15 young photographers working throughout the African diaspora from London to Joburg to New York. And those young artists had a lot to say, right? And I wanted to make sure there was a space for them to say it at the beginning of their careers, because often, particularly in photo, Black artists have had these long careers where no one cared. And then there's this like act of quote unquote discovery often by white dealers or white museum curators that has always just sort of rolled me the wrong way, you know, like, because again, the narrative is again, outside of the community, right, in a lot of ways. And the narrative has to sort of inform or affirm you know, the canonical history of Western art, right, which is shaped and created by whiteness and in relationship to whiteness, right? And so for me, it was just important to make sure that, you know, I was focusing on new voices who, frankly, had broke from those traditions, right? And who had largely thought about the internet and social media and their communities as a space where they're going to create from, right? And so in this new book, there's a similar thing happening, and it really sort of it takes the last 10 years, and it explores not only there are photographers, right, but there's painters, conceptual artists, um, installation artists who are working today, right? People like Kevin Beasley, Eric Mack, Jordan Castile, Jennifer Packer, Tamashi Jackson, the list kind of goes on and on, and they're that group of artists had all been collected by Bernard Lumpkin, who's a black collector in New York, and who is a patron on the board of the Whitney Museum and Studio Museum in Harlem and MoMA and the Skowhegan School of Painting, which is a very influential school in Maine. And so when I was asked to edit that project, I was trying to make sure that we we're still having a conversation about the future. What was so great about that book and being able to do that book was that 10 years ago, when I was 21, I moved to New York and didn't know what, what I was going to do. I was teaching and I fell in with this group of artists and group of thinkers and they became my community, right? And so 10 years later to be able to reflect on not just the artists, but also Thelma Golden, the curator, is also included in the book. And there are other curators and curatorial voices. Jess Bell Brown wrote an amazing essay and there are other sort of contributions. 
So it's a reflection of community, a reflection of the world in which I believed in, the art in which I knew was possible, that is now getting a lot of attention in the art world. But 10 years ago, 20 years ago, it was not, right? And so like the New Black Vanguard, um, Young Giffen and Black, not only thinks about this current generation, right, my peers, it also thinks about the generations that came before. And so it really is a conversation of lineage and how artists and thinkers and patrons ensure that the work that is being created is seen, is critically engaged, and is in spaces like museums, right? And so those two books and I would say my larger sort of writing and curatorial practice is really sort of predicated on the idea that like I'm young and I want to have a real engagement with the artists of my time, you know, like past writers and past curators. And I think working in the way that I do allows me to, for me to have those conversations. These artists, all of them, they're young, right? And their their practices will change and I remember being in some of their studios when some of the works were being, you know, created years ago, you know, speaking about Young, Gifted, and Black, and speaking to the artists then, and speaking to the artists now, the thinking has changed, right? And, and it's gotten deeper, and it's gotten more complex, and it's gotten, you know, in some ways funnier, in some ways, you know, there's all of these sort of things that happen, I think, in the lifespan of an artwork and an artist that the public doesn't always get to sort of know or see, given the way that we position art, right? And I wanted to sort of figure out a way to make sure that we saw the art, but we also saw the thinking behind the art, right? You saw my sort of critical thinking, but you also see, you get the artist's voices as well. And I think that helps to sort of demystify art, right? I think it helps to sort of speak to all communities, right? Um, and not just sort of the ones that are in the know or the ones that, you know, grew up with families who collected or the ones who think of art as some sort of trophy and they can buy and things, you know what I mean? It's a rich activity, but really sort of all communities is about, you know, certain people or certain communities or certain themes that does not exclude poor people, does not exclude people who don't have a history of going to the museum. And so I always try to make super inclusive projects just because like, I want to speak to real people. I have no real desire to speak to art people, you know, <laughs> like, that's just not why I'm in this sort of, I really do think that, you know, there's a real power to art. And I want to make sure that we all have access to it, right? In the intervening decade, from when you moved to New York, mm -hmm. to making this book, you are at once chronicling the evolution of these artists. Mm -hmm. But it also has to be some sort of evolving capsule of how you feel about the work itself and what your purpose in this space is. How have you been thinking about that? I mean, I can't stress how radically different position I'm in, position these artists are in, position the art world is in. Ten years ago, I could not get some of these artists written about. They were just not interested. So just on a writing level, the type of stories that we're seeing now in sort of a wider press is just completely different. I make the joke that people confused the New York Times today for Ebony and Jet. 
And 10 years ago, it wasn't that way. They only covered the major Black artists, and if that. Why did that change? One thing is that we saw a real decades-long effort by people like Thelma Golden, Helen Smosworth, Bernard Lumpkin, you know, artists, thinkers, curators, patrons, started this work a long time ago. And I think you see the sort of future of their labor in that. But then I also think that, unfortunately, the specter of Black men, women, and children being murdered by the state and justice not being served. And I think that started a conversation or accelerated a conversation around the racial dynamics and disparities in this country and how whiteness is pervasive in institutions. And it most shows its supremacy in sort of the ways in which institutional power is wielded in this country. And so I think that started a lot of of our institutions, art institutions, educational institutions, film institutions, to look at themselves and to examine how have they been a part of the problem. I don't think that work has gone far enough. For example, what I mean by that is that still the majority of people who are tasked with telling the story of art are white. And they're white in a city like New York, which is an extremely diverse city. Until very recently, galleries only represented, by and large, white male artists. And you'll have a woman here, you'll have a Black artist there. And then in museum collections, still, primarily white male, you know? And I think that the work hasn't gone far enough. And I think that we are at a moment where it could go either way. And I think that it's important that we continue to think through how to sustain a very fragile progress, you know, in terms of cultural space. Could you see what happened four years ago with the politics, with Trump? We thought we had this watershed moment, you know, with the election of Barack Obama and the re-election of Barack Obama. And in some ways it was. But then it's so easy for a country to slip back. And I think that that's the lesson for me and all of us in watching the country is that it's so easy for cultural institutions to to slip back. I really do think that all of them, when George Floyd was, you know, tragically uh, murdered, issued these statements, you know, Black Lives Matter, Black Lives Matter, Black Lives Matter. And, you know, my sort of reaction was like, well, where do they matter? Do they matter on your board? Do they matter on your curatorial staff? Do they matter in directorships? Do they matter? Like, where? Show us. Where? And I think the time for sort of empty statements, it, it's just, it's a time for action. It really is. You know, they like to, we like to sort of talk about community. And we don't like to sort of think through the fact that, to paraphrase, you know, your last guest, Cornel West, that community is just not a virtue. It has to be an action. You have to sort of act. And he was speaking about hope, but, you know, I think the same thing sort of applies to these notions of community. You know, we love to say, talk about audience. We love to talk about community in the art world. And we, we, we talk about that as, as some sort of virtue, but we don't talk about like the real work that it requires. Hopefully, we will put some action, some real action behind that. And that means that, you know, some people need to lose their fucking jobs. 
You know, like this is not a zero sum game, right? Some things need to change. Institutions need to change. People need institutions that are flexible, that adapt to the moment, that are willing to take risk. Some people could also just gracefully retire. That too, but it doesn't seem likely. You know, that's power. And when you get to write the story of this artist over that artist, you are a part of the historical record by definition. The art shows don't stay up forever, right? In galleries, they run for about six weeks, you know, in museums, maybe three months, you know, four months or so. And then after that, all you have is art images and the written word. That gives the writer an unbelievable amount of power. And then also, it's not about just bringing in one person, right? It's not about like, oh, we have, you know, this black person or this woman or this whatever, person of color. And then now we're going to, by virtue of the fact that there's no other people there that are from different communities, that person becomes our token. So what kind of like awful position to put someone in? Black people cannot save these institutions. And I don't care where they are in those institutions. It really is about a restructuring. There's a recurring pattern around the single story narrative. And I want to go back to something we were talking about. In 2008, Obama turns into President Obama. Mm -hmm. A decade later, Tyler Mitchell shoots the historic Vogue cover in August of 2018. Hello, hello. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. In my book, David and Goliath, I tried to figure out how some people find the strength to take on the established way of thinking and turn it upside down. What does it take to be a disruptor? And I concluded that a disruptor is someone with a rare combination of three traits. First, you have to be open. You have to be willing to see and do things in new ways. Secondly, you have to be conscientious, to follow through and make things happen. Those two are obvious, but the third one is the crucial one. You have to be willing to do what you think is right, even when everyone around you thinks you're an idiot. There isn't a brilliant innovator in history who wasn't surrounded by naysayers. Most of us can't take that kind of criticism and we fold, but the disruptor doesn't. They soldier on. I've been looking at disruptors and their success stories a lot lately, partly because I'm working on a follow-up to the tipping point and market disruption plays a key role in how ideas take off, but also because I'm going to be the keynote speaker at this year's unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business. It's an event where customers are recognized for kicking convention to the curb to elevate their company, while also doing meaningful things for their community and even the world. In fact, I'll be presenting the first ever Tipping Point designation, a new special distinction honoring one entrant that sparked transformative change for their organization. If this event sounds like your thing, I encourage you to find out more or even enter the unconventional awards to be recognized for your disruptive thinking. Win a donation to a charity of your choice and much more. You can enter before July 31st at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. That's tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. I'll save you a seat. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. 
Join hosts Ben Walter, CEO of Chase for Business, and Tanya Nebo, a lawyer and business consultant, on these storytelling journeys of trials, tribulations, and triumphs that hinged on a single event, a split-second decision, or even a stroke of luck. Whether the story is about a warehouse going up in flames or a former partner stealing a whole roster of clients, each episode will showcase the grit, determination, and resourcefulness a small business owner needed to turn a pivotal situation into a springboard for success. Listen to The Unshakables now and learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase, NA member, FDIC, 2024, J.P. Morgan Chase & Co. Hi, I'm Cindy Crawford, and I'm the founder of Meaningful Beauty. Well, I don't know about you, but, like, I never liked being told, oh, wow, you look so good for your age. Like, why even bother saying that? Why don't you just say you look great at any age, every age? That's what Meaningful Beauty is all about. We create products that make you feel confident in your skin at the age you are now. Meaningful Beauty. Beautiful skin at every age. Learn more at MeaningfulBeauty.com. For Beyonce. Obviously, the two are not equally important. But what's similar about these two situations is the rhetoric around them happening. Absolutely. Which in Obama's case was the distancing from racism, the erasure of racism, the uh, sort of newfound acceptance of colorblindness, which is a complete mythology. And then in 2018, just a decade later, where Vogue, this historic institution, maybe the most important institution in the fashion world, mm -hmm. hires their first black photographer to shoot the cover. The rhetoric around that happening was, of course, a celebration of Tyler and his work, but also, look, this is the change we've been talking about. We have turned the corner. And in both cases, there's been huge backslides. And after Tyler received this cover... You had this quote in an interview in 2018. You said, no one makes those decisions out of the kindness of their heart. That, to me, speaks to the very serious issues these institutions and the language around change faces. Yeah, I mean, I think you're absolutely right, right? The, we are a country down to Black History Month that are obsessed with this notion or this narrative of the Black first. And that framing of our experience is and has been destructive to progress. Because after the first, there's this idea that now everything's fixed, right? Now we are no longer racist. Now Vogue is no longer upheld, you know, white beauty standards and we're all sort of in this together. And then you go, okay, now we're two years out. How many other black photographers have shot the cover of Vogue? One, and that was Lizzo last month by Hype Williams. I think there's this thing that happens where we use those examples to make ourselves feel good and to 
allow us to not really bear the full weight of the responsibility of what it means to lead these institutions. It's almost like a marketing sort of thing, you know, of, oh, Vogue now, after 126 years, is now this bastion of progress, and they're turning the page. And then you go, well, where are the editors? Where, where are the other photographers? I did a whole book, New Black Vanguard. There are hundreds of them. Where are their opportunities of growth? The, the thing with, with creativity and the thing with sort of what it means to be an artist and how do you make an artist and, and how artists sort of deepen themselves, it's in part about opportunity to grow. It's about having, again, the space to meet the demand, to experiment, and then thus have the resources to sort of do that experimentation, create the images you want, create the sculpture, create whatever. A lot of us have not even been given the opportunity to see if we could even meet the moment. That has become increasingly a part of the process for me. How do I, in the space that I occupy, create more space? And so in a new Black Vanguard, how do you add something new to the conversation? How do you give someone else an opportunity, right? How do you create more space with the space that you've been given? And similarly with, you know, Young, Gifted, and Black, right? Inviting in writers into the project. That was my decision, right? There was, a, there was an editorial decision as the editor of the book that I made. And so not only do you have young artists, but you also have young curators. You have Thomas Lax who's a young curator at MoMA, right? Writing on behalf of another young artist, you know, Jacoby Sadaway, right? You have Jess Bell Brown, young curator at the now at the Baltimore Museum of Art, writing an essay about the artist that she came up with. So you have this sort of expansion of space, expansion of opportunity. Those are the examples I saw coming up, right? With Thelma and the, what she's done to the Studio Museum in Harlem and the way that the Studio Museum in Harlem is really not only a training ground for artists with their artist's residency, but also becomes a training ground for curators, right? Many of the young curator, Black curators around the country have a connection to Studio Museum in Harlem. And so there are examples out there, I think, that allow us to really sort of try in your own way, you know, like change the sort of scenario and the situation, right? And that's why, in a lot of ways, I'm deeply committed to young Black artists because there's still too few routes for them to be successful. The internet has allowed more and more young artists to circumvent those traditional structures that we're talking about, especially mm -hmm. on Instagram. Yep. It has democratized photography in a way. Yes and no. Yes, because you wouldn't have a book like New Black Grand without Instagram, without social media. You, you wouldn't even have the photographers without it because many of these photographers say, well, oh, actually, because I grew up on Tumblr and Twitter and Instagram and Facebook, I was like, oh, I want to take my own images. And I got really interested in taking my own images on my phone. And then I was like, oh, wait, this is, I want to do more with this. And then it grew, right? And so they grew their, their, their career in that way. And so in that way, there has been a sort of democratizing. But white supremacy is primarily wielded through institutional power. So then you look at, okay, well, how do photographers who are working in a commercial setting primarily, how do they sustain themselves historically? Gallery representation, 
and agency representation. Then you look at the gallery rosters, you look at the agency rosters, and very few of these artists are on those rosters. And so that means that we're in this moment that is really interesting. We're seeing their work on the covers of magazines, right? All these different magazines, you know, what have you. But they don't have the structural support to sustain that sort of output. You know, I've often said when people say, why hasn't another black photographer shot the cover of Vogue after Tyler, right? Young photographer. Because you can argue that Hype Williams is not a photographer. He's an artist, for sure, but that's a different sort of thing, right? Than someone who's like, I am a photographer, etc. You know, it's just different. Not to take anything away from but it's a different thing. It's like someone who is an artist directing a film, and it's like, cool, you directed a film, but like, what about these young Black directors who can't get the same opportunity? And it's your success in another arena that gave you the opportunity in this arena, right? Which is not a reflection of progress inside that arena. And I just think that like, we need to be like, really sort of clear about that, right? There's a something different when you get a legend like Hype Williams to shoot a cover versus going out and saying, Oh, Nadine, Micaiah, whoever, I know this is a work you do because you've done this work in this arena and excelled at this, you know, at this. The next step for you is to shoot this other cover. That's a different sort of thing. And that's not happening. And so we're in this interesting moment where I hope that what we see is structural support for these artists to not only create things, but to grow their careers. And to be here for the long haul, because longevity has often been a white privilege. And I want us to just be very clear about that, right? Because we're in this moment of hypervisibility, right? And it's not unlike other moments. As recently as the 90s, you think about sort of a space like fashion, right? You had all of these brands, these black fashion brands. Where are they now? Heritage is a white privilege. And I want us to be really clear about, or at least I just want to be personally clear about what I'm after. And that's like structural change. That means I would like to see Tyler at 23 do a cover of Vogue. I'd like to see Tyler at 75 do a cover of Vogue, right? Because he's been there doing that work, been around, been able to sort of grow his practice, change his practice, make films, do all the things, and then come back to it. Because that is the sort of lifespan of successful artists that we have seen. The privilege of the long haul is yeah. a really fascinating idea. But also the privilege of a mistake. Right, which, which would be part and parcel of the long haul, which, of course, yeah. you would make mistakes. It is counter to this idea of black excellence, right? It's, it's counter to this idea of, like, this perfection. It's counter to this idea that of insecurity, right? Because like, for me, those concepts like black excellence, perfectionism, all of that stuff, that those are, those are born out of real sort of anxiety around a positionality, real anxiety about will I be able to be here if I'm not quote unquote excellent. And we've seen that that has not been the standard for the other group. So I'm just sort of interested in my own way, in the art world, with the artists that, you know, I have relationships with and with themes that I care about, how can I critically engage them over the long haul? As Cornel West is fond of quoting, 
ever tried, ever fail, no matter, try again, fail again, fail better, to quote Beckett. And the absence and the inability for people of color to try again, fail again, fail better, is not only tragic, but it's a disservice to all parties. It's a disservice to the artist. Maybe more importantly, it's a disservice to us, the people who go to the museums, who go to the movie theaters, who watch the television shows, who read the books, who pay for some of that. You know, I always say that America is maybe interested in five, six stories. And those stories have to be retold over and over and over again. And in this moment, we're interested in those stories, same stories, being told by people who have women bodies, by people who have black bodies, but it's the same narratives. And so my point is, how do you break out of those narratives? How do you break out of these stories that we know do not work? How do you break out of the myth? And only through that sort of what you talk about, that failure, that experimentation, that risk-taking, do you get to a breakthrough? that another story becomes possible. I hope that that is where we are going. But before we get to where I think you and I want to go, I'm curious about the interiors of these institutions. What are the obstacles to telling those new stories inside these long-standing structures? The analogy that I think about is how artworks end up in the museum. The curators say one thing. They go, this is the reflection of beauty and, and all of these things. And, and they are in you know, a lot of cases. But what else happens is that you have families who have donated a wing or who had <laughs> helped buy this other piece of work. And so you have to take their collection or whatever. And so that's how a lot of works end up on the walls of museums. It's people's private collections. And... We're not honest about that. We're not honest about the whole process. And I think that if we were, then I think reform would be possible because people would be outraged. How do you reform a system that you don't quite understand how things work? And I think being opaque is a part of how inequality exists and really survives. Even in our government, we don't have a real sort of understanding on the day-to-day -day sort of citizen level of how these things work until it's a fucking horror show. And then we want to reform the Supreme Court. And then we want to start talking about what the attorney general can and cannot do. You don't search for health insurance once you're already in the hospital. Exactly. And because, you know, there's no sort of real public funding of these things, it is left to the rich. And if something like that is left to the rich, then what ends up happening is they start to fill the ranks of those jobs at every sort of level. Because who else? If you're a museum director, right, and you're, you have to raise incredible sums of money, there is only one place you can go to raise that type of money. And so you have to be part of those groups. And so it's not shocking that the system then becomes a reflection of, you know, wealth inequality. Because the system is a reflection of wealth inequality at every turn, everywhere you look. We started early in our conversation, we talked about how people don't draw connections between real estate and the possibilities of art making in New York City. 
And so much of it is ordered by what space do we have available? And how can we use that space? It's just one more articulation of the idea that the art world is really just a reflection of the wider world, as is the art on the wall. And it's also just one more articulation that things have to change. Well, I want this episode to exist as a kind of reflection of you and your work. So since people can't really be in museums right now, or most people can't, I thought we'd create this kind of virtual space on our website and walk through these six pieces that I especially liked. So for those listening, they can go to talkeasypod.com slash Antoine. You will find these six pieces as Antoine helps us work through them. I love this. I love the, the, I've not seen the pieces before. I just want everyone to know. And so this is going to be great. So the, uh, the first piece is by Bethany Collins. It's called Too White to be Black. You know, Bethany's work is really sort of about language, and she works sort of with language as her primary material. It's about sort of the way that, you know, language is a construction, right? And the ways in which, you know, we think about language and experience language is often, you know, an experience of power. And this work, Too White to be Black, from 2014, it's a, a chalk on chalkboard. She is thinking about sort of racial identity, but also the erasure that occurs in some of the spaces that we talked about, you know, on the podcast. And she's taking others' texts and as a way to sort of think through sort of the ways in which language informs racial identity, but also expectation, desire, privilege, and so forth. So the second piece is by Chiffon Thomas. It's called A Mother Who Had No Mother. What's interesting about Chiffon Thomas's work, who also grew up in Chicago like the both of us, it's a work that is thinking about this idea of craft and the history of craft, sort of reclaiming embroidery and reclaiming craft as something that belongs in contemporary conversations about art. There's a long history of erasure and there's a long history of looking down on craft and in relationship to, say, paint. Mm -hmm. And formally, the way in which they are using embroidery as sort of a way to paint is a real opportunity to sort of investigate the hierarchies within capital A art. Chiffon is very, very young also, uh, early 20s, currently a graduate student getting an MFA at Yale. And I really uh, was really excited to include their work in the book and the exhibition that's traveling um, because it's an artist, you know, at the very beginning of their career. And I just can't wait to see what happens, you know, next and and where Chiffon takes embroidery and takes the way in which they are thinking about mixing embroidery with paint to create, you know, figurative images. You have two histories right there, right? You have the history of needlework, and then you also have the history of painting, Western painting, sort of colliding in their work. 
Our third piece is by Derek Adams. His piece is called The Great Wall. Derek is an artist who was really central to this project because Derek's practice is not only artworks, but Derek worked as a curator for over a decade. Curated, actually, curator at Rush Arts and their Chelsea space and gave a lot of artists, many of which are in this book, like Jacoby, their first show, exhibition in Chelsea. And that really is a, a real articulation of this idea of creating space and of rethinking what's possible in the positions that you're in. So Derek is a key figure in our community because of the ways in which he's helped many artists, you know, many of which we have gone on to be real heavyweights like Candy Wiley, McLean Thomas, et cetera, et cetera. His sort of ethos is that he is interested in sort of deconstruction and interested in showing how works are made that is very sort of important to him. And in this image of Mike Tyson with this sort of wall that Derek has created over the image, right? Derek is also sort of a multidisciplinary artist. And he's often thinking about notions of fashion, notions of masculinity, which you have here in this work, notions of community and joy. He's really thinking sort of really critically about Black spaces of liberation. And in what I mean by that, he's thinking about sort of how we in the everyday create those spaces. There's an image of Martin Luther King on vacation. And that image for him has become such a point of departure for his inquiry, just because often we don't see those images, right, of Martin Luther King, right? We see him in protests, we see him at marches, we see him laboring. And so part of Derek's practice as a late has been to sort of think about the black body in repose, right, and rest. And this work is an earlier work of his, but it, it shows, I believe, all of the concerns that he's deepened over the years. Again, for those listening who want to follow along, be sure to visit our site at talkeasypod.com slash sergeant. This fourth piece is by Kara Walker, and it's called Untitled 2. What's interesting about this piece is that we all, or most of us, know who Kara Walker is, world-famous artist, who started very young. She had her first breakout show, I believe, at the age of 24 at the Drawing Center in, in New York City. This work was made in 1996. She would have been 26, I believe. And so although Kara Walker is sort of a mid-career artist now, when this work was made, she was younger. And what's sort of interesting about this particular work, right? It's one of her silhouette works um, that she's become famous for, but has moved away from in recent years. She has kind of taken to a drawing practice that is painterly. And it talks about the ways in which slavery, the antebellum period, is still with us, right? We're living sort of in an afterlife of slavery. And she's made these really sort of disturbing, frankly, images. In the one before you, what you see is a young girl pulling out the intestines of a pig that speaks to sort of violence and speaks to the ongoing trauma that we experience. And it's really sort of important that we sort of think about how we often encounter the silhouette, right? Often as kids, right, it, it's used 
in children's books and things like that. And so she's repurposed that innocence, that sort of casualness, that sort of formative pictorial experience to sort of equate that with one of the earliest sort of formative institutions of this country. She is in the book because of, one, at the age when she created this work, but two, she really has been, I believe, an artist that had opened the possibility for those who came after her. The experience of being a young artist and being that universally accepted and out of college, right? She was at RISD. It was her first show, really one of her first shows. And then she's, you know, wins the MacArthur Genius Grant, right? And just, it's just total sort of global art star. That didn't happen to Black artists, you know, before Kara Walker in a lot of ways. And now we're seeing that more and more. And I think that she's just such an important touchstone for contemporary art in general, but particularly for the shifts that we've seen within Black artistic production. This fifth piece is by Sadie Barnett. It's called Untitled People's World. This work is sort of interesting because it's actually her father's FBI file. Her father was a Black Panther in Oakland. And during Quarantown Pro, the FBI spied on American citizens. And her father was one of the Black Panthers that that they spied on and developed a file for. And Sadie and her father discovered the file. And then Sadie, who is someone who often works with ephemera and decided to sort of mark the file as images, right? And sort of use this purple spray paint to sort of leave and make a new mark on these works, right? And so the work is sort of as a part of a larger practice that explores sort of the personal as political, right? Her father and is thinking through sort of sculpture and drawing and collage as a way to sort of think through her personal history, think through her family history. She also often uses found photographs, such as, you know, another one is called Untitled Baby Girl from 2017. And she sort of uses rhinestones and other sort of gestures, you know, glitter to sort of reorient those images with new gestures that connects her life to sort of the ephemera of her, the lives of her student family through sort of this, through this process. There's this idea of documentation and what do you do with the sort of documents of your lives, right? And how can you impress yourself onto a family history? And I think that's all seen in the work. And I think that not only is she thinking about sort of historical burdens, right? as it relates to her own history, but she's also sort of making gestures with glitter, with spray paint, with color, with rhinestones that really sort of speaks to joy and possibility and hope. Our sixth and final piece also happens to be the cover of your book, Young, Gifted, and Black. It's by Tanji Jones, and it's called Blue Dancer. This work, this painting, Blue Dancer, combines the visual lexicon of European, West African, and American art into sort of these lush, ethereal paintings. And so you see this sort of sensual brushwork 
um, in this particular work and other works as well, they evoke in a lot of ways, you know, painters like Chris Ophelia and Bob Thompson, you know, who are two inspirations for Tanji's work. But then there's also sort of the ways in which he's thinking about sort of realism and abstraction, right? And so you have a figure that alludes to sort of a female figure, but then you also have the body made in these sort of abstract forms, but also is making this abstract gesture. And so he's thinking through not just figuration, but um, the history of abstraction and the ways in which, you know, color and shape also is synonymous with desire. Antoine Sargent, people cannot go to museums for the most part, but it's as close as many people are going to get. So I thank you so much for doing that. I thank you for this book, and I thank you for coming on. Thanks for having me. I love that we got to talk, and I want to continue the conversation. Anytime. Stay safe. our show. Special thanks today to Hannah Gottlieb Cram, Eric Lures, and Antoine Sargent. If you'd like to check out Antoine's latest book, Young, Gifted, and Black, you can visit our website at www.talkeasypod.com slash Antoine. That's talkeasypod.com slash Antoine. If you're new to the show and would like to check out more conversations, be sure to listen to our episodes with Cornell West, Representative Ilhan Omar, Claudia Rankin, Miranda July, Gloria Steinem, Fran Lebowitz, Ted Danson, Janelle Monet, Brittany Howard, Carol Burnett, Titus Burgess, Norman Lear, Malcolm Gladwell, Jeremy O. Harris, and many, many more. You can find those on our website or wherever you do your listening. Spotify, Apple, Google, Stitcher. You can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at TalkEasyPod. And if you'd like to join our mailing list, drop me a line at TalkEasyPod at gmail.com. This show is made possible by an incredible team each and every week, including our executive producer, Janixa Bravo, our associate producer, Nikki Spina, illustrations by Krishna Shenoy. Our lead editor is Andre Lin. Our assistant editors are David Harding, Rena Jung, Kevin Kaur, and Joshua Siegel. Our music is by Dylan Peck, marketing by Patrice Lee. Our interns are Juliana Rector, Grace Perkins, and Ian Simmons. Graphics by Derek Gabrazak and Ethan Seneca. And the show is produced by Caroline Raybach. I'm Sam Fragoso. Thank you for listening to Talk Easy. We'll be back on Sunday with philosopher, historian, and author Rucker Bregman. Until then, stay safe and so long. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, 
you'll be publicly honored among some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. Did you know some travel credit cards offer 10 times points on your spending? Don't miss out on big rewards for your next trip. NerdWallet lets you compare smart travel credit cards side by side, curated by an expert team of finance nerds. What could future you do with better travel rewards? A free flight? A room upgrade? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. What's up, y'all? Janice Torres here. And I'm Austin Hankwitz. We're the hosts of Mind the Business, Small Business Success Stories, a podcast presented by iHeartRadio's Ruby Studios and Intuit QuickBooks. Join us as we speak with small business owners about the tools they use to turn their ideas into success. From finding that initial spark of entrepreneurship to organizing payments and invoices, we've got you covered. So follow and listen to Mind the Business, Small Business Success Stories on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts.